Kamusta, this is your host Alicia, aka your favorite Asian. Happy International Women's Day to all my lady listeners. It is also Women's History Month and Social Work Month, so honestly, this March has been a pretty good one so far. It has also been a whole year since we've been technically on lockdown with COVID. I mean, Texas in two days is literally going to have no more mask mandate, which is pretty scary. And so that's a whole other story I could get into later, but I can't believe it's been a whole year since we've technically been on lockdown. And if you saw the title of this episode, we are going to talk about the newest Disney film, Raya and the Last Dragon. So Raya is the first Southeast Asian Disney princess. And let me tell you, this movie was so realistic and you could tell how much effort they put into this film because, you know, I obviously know Disney is not going to disappoint us. Typically, I am not into Disney films though, but I literally love Moana and now Raya. I remember when I was in high school, my English teacher went around and asked us what our favorite movie was. And of course, all the girls in my class were like Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast. And I literally said, she's the man with Amanda Vines and Channing Tatum. And the look my teacher gave me was of disgust, like so much disapproval that I was not like every white girl in my classroom that said a Disney movie. And I think it's because yes, there was the movie Mulan, but I did not really identify with her culture. So it did not resonate with me as a Filipino. And I think a lot of minorities can relate to that because Cinderella, white, Beauty and the Beast, white. Now we have Princess and the Frog, Moana, Aladdin. So it's just like more cultures need to be identified in these movies and brought more into light. So for me, Raya and the Last Dragon really intrigued me. And so with that, I watched it this weekend on Disney+. Plus. But first, let me tell you before we get into it. Yes, it was $30 on Disney+. Plus. Now thinking about it, my fiance and I were like, it does not cost $30 to see it in theaters. But then again, we realized like we can watch this movie however many times we want. So it's like going to the movies multiple times. So we ended up justifying spending that $30, especially since we both wanted to see how my culture was represented in this movie. Now I'm not going to be giving away too many spoilers because I want you to be able to watch this movie yourself. But I am the, typically the person that as soon as the movie starts I'm looking up the plot on Wikipedia or like looking up how it ends on any of the sites because I do not like surprises but for this movie I was practically forced to just enjoy and watch it without spoilers but to give an overview the story follows the quest of Raya as she searches for the fabled dragon Sisu in order to restore a broken world so Raya and the Last Dragon was co-written by Vietnamese American screenwriter Ki Wen and Malaysian screenwriter Adele Lim who is also best known for co-writing Crazy Rich Asians which I honestly love love that movie so much. And then Fawn Vera Sunthorn is a Thai American and she led the artistic direction as head of story. Now the visuals were amazing. Chef's kiss honestly. For moments I thought the people were real. Of course the most unrealistic thing was the dragon but the dragon was so beautiful anyways. And apparently to conduct research for Ryan the Last Dragon they traveled to the Southeast Asian countries. Before the pandemic members of the production team traveled to places like Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, in Singapore to learn about their cultures. And the movie is based in a land called Kumandra and in creating the five regions in the movie, each had its own personality and aesthetic where filmmakers intentionally incorporated commonalities across Southeast Asia instead of, you know, making them separate. Like this one's Thailand, this one's Malaysia. They decided to like make it across the board, which I appreciated. So some of the representation in this film were voiced by Asian American actors. So they had Kelly Marie Tran as Raya, Aquafina as Sisu the Dragon, Gemma Chan as Namare Hervai, 
revival. Daniel Day Kim as Raya's dad, Benedict Wong as Tong the warrior giant, and Sandra Oh as Namari's mother, just to name a few. In an article in the Times, the absence of a Filipino actor among the main cast has also been called out as a blind spot. This became especially salient because the initial pick to play Raya was Filipino-Canadian actor Cassie Seal, but she was replaced by Kelly Marie Tran in August 2020. The change was apparently made because there was a key change to Raya's character, so it was surprising not to see one of Filipino descent was part of the main cast because I feel like that needs representation as part of Southeast Asia. The gap is all the more glaring given that Filipinos are the second largest Asian American group in the US. But some say the pie for Asian actors and Asian American actors is so slim that many can't really be mad at these East Asian actors for seeing an opportunity and wanting to be part of the movie. Also, another setback was the accessibility. Like I said, it is on Disney Plus. So there was the lack of access to Disney Plus in much of Southeast Asia, which added to many fans being frustrated, which I can totally understand because currently Disney Plus is available in Indonesia and Singapore and Raya and the Last Dragon is opening in theaters in other countries where cinemas are open, including Thailand and Malaysia. But still the absence of the streaming platform from a number of the countries that inspired the film has prompted discussions about who is the intended audience for this film. Now, given all of these dilemmas with the film, I honestly thoroughly enjoyed it. I wish there was at least one Filipino actor as a main star, but the film itself is powerful and moving. It appears that Raya was using Arnas, the national martial art of the Philippines in her martial arts scenes because speculation was kickstarted because of the imagery of the sticks she uses to fight. Also, the movie shows characters wearing a salaka, which is a traditional headgear worn in the Philippines to protect from rain and sun. I also really appreciated that she did not have a man who came to help her and sweep her off her feet because Raya was fine all on her own. Kelly Tran, the voice of Raya, alluded to say that she thinks Raya was lesbian and might have a love interest with Namari, which honestly I could see in the film and I think that is a step in the right direction for Disney to not always pair, you know, Disney princesses with a charming prince because that is not really realistic in our society. I also cried at the end and since I am not gonna give away too many spoilers, I won't say why I cried, but if you watched it already, you probably know why. The moral of the story is trust and I think that is a perfect thing in a world full of people only out there for themselves and it honestly was a good way to tie all her adventures together. Of course, I talk about true crime and how not to trust people and here I'm saying, oh, it was so beautiful that she trusted them. But with that, if you have the chance to see it in theaters or on Disney+, Plus, I highly recommend because the CGI visuals, music, cultural background, and storyline were just amazing. Today, I will be discussing the Lordsburg's killings. So this was the shooting of two elderly Japanese American men named Toshiro Kubita and Hirota Isamura at an internment camp outside Lordsburg, New Mexico on July 27, 1942. So Camp Lordsburg was originally an enemy alien camp managed by the Department of Justice. Construction began shortly after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1942. 
1931, and the site chosen for the facility was just outside the small desert town of Lordsburg in New Mexico's southwestern corner. The first group of internees, all men from California, arrived in the first week of June 1942, and others followed after them. They were considered to be potentially dangerous by the FBI, which said that their incarceration was quote-unquote essential for national security. On the night of July 27, 1942, this group of Japanese men were being transported to Camp Lordsburg from another camp at Fort Lincoln, North Dakota. After getting off the train, Toshira Kabuda and Hiroda Isamura were walking down the road together and behind all the others. Both were in their late 50s and could not keep up with the pace. Kabuda had suffered from tuberculosis for 16 years, according to his friend Hiroshi Isowa. Fukijira Hashia, a good friend of Isamura, reported that he hurt his spine years ago, falling off a boat at the Bismarck camp in North Dakota, so he walked with a stoop. Hashia said that his whole body would tremble when he stood and that he could not run. The shooting occurred sometime during the two-mile trek through the Chichuan Desert. Clarence Burleson saw the two internees wander off off the road. According to the official report, Burleson shouted halt twice before shooting both of the men with a shotgun at about 30 yards away. Kubota survived the shooting, but he did not survive the night. He died in the dispensary at 5.30 a.m. The official word is he died of his wounds. The coroner later found nine pellets each in the middle left portion of their backs, and since the shot pattern was not very wide, it was an indication that the shooting occurred at a close range. It was also revealed that the two men had asked the guards to use a restroom, but the guards denied them permission to do so. This suggested that they may have walked off the road to relieve themselves. At first, Burleson was treated as a hero for stopping an escape attempt. An officer at the facility even collected the shotgun shells using the killing as souvenirs and said that Burleson deserved a medal. Army headquarters, on the other hand, did not take the incident so lightly and immediately launched an investigation of the affair. As a result, Burleson was eventually arrested, charged with willfully and lawfully committing murder, and then sent to the 8th Army's headquarters at Fort Bliss, Texas for court martial. The court could not prosecute Burleson for willfully and lawfully committing murder since, according to him, the prisoners were trying to run away and he was merely following standing orders. Consequently, the murder charges were reduced to manslaughter and he was acquitted. During cross-examination, the defense attorney tried to intimidate Hashia into testifying that Isamura could actually stand and walk straight. So he would ask, do you or do you not recollect answering that question? Could he have straightened up if he wanted to? And Hashia answered with, I do not recollect answering that question because his spine was in such a bad condition that he could not stand up if he wanted to. The attorney tried to characterize Hashia's statements during the initial investigation as contradictory. The record, however, is quite consistent. When the attorney asked, you say he couldn't run at all. Would he stumble if he tried it? And Hashia answered, my yes, he would fall down. They say he was trying to run away, but he couldn't even run. Another internee declared because of his illness, Mr. Isamura was permitted to eat earlier than the regular group. I used to see him going back and forth from the dining hall. He walked bent and had to take short, quick steps. When he stood still, his whole body would tremble. He was known for his honesty. About Kubota, Miyoshi Okita, a respected Buddhist priest from Los Angeles, stated, Mr. Kubita was of gentle 
and quiet nature. I am sure that he was not the kind of man who would resist the guards. The result of the court was not accepted by everyone. A memo from the Department of State says, examination of the Army's reports on the shootings gives the impression that the Army shooting rule comes close to making death rather than up to 30 days arrest as provided in Article 54 of the Geneva Convention, the penalty for attempted escape. The government of Japan under Prime Minister Hideki Tojo also protested the killing after hearing about it from internees and lodged a formal complaint. The Japanese said that it is inconceivable that aged invalids hardly able to walk should while under military escort have attempted to escape. A Japanese internee also claimed that the camp's commandant, Colonel Clive Lundy, ordered the deaths of Kubita and Isamura. Apparently, the two men had been involved in a protest against the working conditions at the camp, and Lundy wanted to make an example out of them for challenging his authority. By 1943, all Japanese Americans had been transferred to other facilities, and between 1943 and 1945, the site held up to 4,000 Italian prisoners of war. The site was closed in February 1946. The last Japanese internment camp closed in March 1946. President Gerald Ford officially repealed Executive Order 9066 in 1976, and in 1988, Congress issued a formal apology and passed the Civil Liberties Act, awarding $20,000 each to over 80,000 Japanese Americans. Today, the traveler aware of Lordsburg's violent history might feel unsafe in the unprotected desert below the Borough Mountains. Ten minutes in town, you would drive slowly through the neighborhoods and Lordsburg's residents will wave to you from their porches. They will inform you that an escape from the isolated camp would have been difficult, possibly unthinkable, because the site is located in harsh territory. And with that, we honor Toshiro Kubita and Hirota Isamura. Follow me on Instagram at Your Favorite Asian Podcast and hit that follow button if you enjoyed today's episode. If you have any cases that you would like me to cover, please email me at yourfavoriteasianpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to show kindness and advocate for equality. Pa'alam, and I'll talk to you again next Sunday.